Amen. Let's take our Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 33. <clears throat> or not Genesis, excuse me, Exodus chapter 33. My default is always Genesis, uh, one of my favorite books, if not my the favorite. But Exodus chapter 33, they're in the Old Testament. We're going to talk a little bit about um, Moses as he's been going through, as, as we've been going through this book, the book of uh, the Bible, the Old Testament, going chapter by chapter as we began in January. And we're going to begin uh, this morning uh, in Exodus. I have entitled this message, The Glory of God. The Glory, even in my notes, I'm looking at my notes, it says Genesis 33. It, Exodus, Exodus. Exodus 33. So I want to, again, I want to talk to you about the glory of God. And I got to be honest with you, as I was preparing this message and uh, spending some time in prayer and looking at where we should go, um, you know, the Old or the New Testament is, I wouldn't say it's more applicable to us because all of the word, the whole counsel of God is applicable to us. It's all the word of truth, but we seem to resonate a little bit more. Or the New Testament seems to resonate more in us. Uh, we're more familiar with um, the New Testament. And it's still, the New Testament is still 2,000 years ago, uh, but somehow we feel a little bit more comfortable with the New Testament because the Old Testament is much older. It's far removed. That culture is far removed from us. So when we talk about things like the glory of God or the love of God or the worship of God, we talked about that uh, as we've been going through here, um, the, uh, God's creation and so forth. Uh, it's important that we see these, these first occurrences in the Old Testament. And it helps us understand, really, truly, it helps us understand the New Testament uh, a little bit better. So again, I want to talk to you about the glory of God and how this glory was, was manifested and is manifested to us today. Now, the word glory is certainly used just a, a handful of times, a couple times in the Old Testament before this, before this chapter here in Exodus, a couple times in Genesis. But we do not specifically read about the glory of God until the book of Exodus, until the life of of Moses. In fact, the phrase glory of God first appears in Exodus, and only the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament has more occurrences than the phrase um, glory of the Lord than does the book of Exodus. Moses, of course, we know a little bit about Moses. If we've been saved for a while, we've heard some messages. We've studied uh, the life of Moses. He, of course, met God. Y'all remember there in the burning bush um, in Exodus chapter 3? which really began a long journey with Moses. Now, God used Moses a little bit prior to this, but the, the burning bush incident um, really changed Moses. Uh, it put him on the right trajectory, if you will. And this journey that Moses walked with the Lord for many, many years, 120 years he lived. Uh, his first 40 years he was living in, um, in, in, in Egypt as a, as a servant of Pharaoh, but all along this trip with the Lord, this journey, Moses drew closer and closer and closer with the Lord. That's why we, we read about him, and the Jews, even today, they hold Moses in such a high esteem because of his close walk with the Lord, the same with Abraham and so forth, and many of the patriarchs. But And all of them have their, their special distinctions. All of them have 
some great things about them. And we'll look at some of those great things this morning about Moses and his drawing close to the Lord. Now, we know the events well. God called Moses out of Pharaoh's house. Um, and though Moses, and through Moses, God delivered Israel from Egypt. Now, many times we miss this, but Egypt at that time was the most powerful nation in the world, and God delivered His people from the clutches of the most powerful nation in the world. So, and He can still do that today, by the way. And after sending many plagues to Egypt or on Egypt because of Pharaoh's uh, rebuttal and refusal, his denial, God delivered His ch- children, beginning, of course, with the Passover, led them through the Red Sea and on to the wilderness. While they were in the wilderness, he led them through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He led them to Mount Sinai, where God gave them the Ten Commandments. But Israel, the children of Israel, like us many times, I think sometimes we look at the children of Israel and I'm like, why are they so stubborn? Why are they so stiff-necked? Why are they so rebellious? We're just like they are many times. But We're going to talk about them this morning first, and then we'll kind of look at some of the things about us. But Israel, over and over, God blessed them. Israel rebelled. While they traveled, God miraculously provided over and over again. You you remember the stories about the man of the quails. God literally sent them so much quails, they ate it, and it came out of their noses, the Bible says. There was that much quail. But they continued over and over to rebel. They complained. They complained. Moses intervened. God forgave. Moses intervened, and God forgave. While Moses talked to God on the mountain, y'all remember the story. They, what were they doing while, while Moses was re- receiving the first set of Ten Commandments? They were worshiping idols that they made. They made idols with their own hands. I don't know what's going on with this Moses up there, but we're going to make a golden calf, and we're going to worship. The God that just led them through the Red Sea to watch the waters part before them, ah, he's not the real God. Let's make a golden calf. They rebelled. It's important to see as we look at this to recognize that God did not forgive them through Moses. That's clear in Scripture. Uh, But Moses did fill an integral role, an important role, in leading God's people. While they were in that moment worshiping the molten calf, Moses descended, and in his righteous anger, what did he do? He threw the tablets down. He broke them. Those tablets that were written with the finger of God, he he threw them down. And so disappointed was God with the people he chose, he told Moses, you remember that? He goes, I'm just going to start all over. I'll build a new nation with you. And Moses intervenes. God knew he was going to do that. God's leading Moses. God intervened. Moses forgave. And while God continued to show mercy over and over and allowing them really to live like he does for us today, after that incident... God did something they hadn't done yet at this point. He removed himself from their center. He says, no more while I be in the center of of my people, I'm going to be on the outside. Now, he will eventually come back, but when you're reading this in in time and, and place, these children of Israel, Moses even, they didn't know that God would come back. God literally moved his presence from within them and put it outside the village. And Moses built a tabernacle, and only Moses would meet with God. Y'all remember that? They would, they would come to the, the edge of their tent there, and uh, when Moses or when God came down to speak with Moses, they would sit there on the edge of the tent, and they would watch because they were afraid. Before that, they used to wear, uh, the priests used to wear certain um, emeralds. They still do in some places like this, or in, in, throughout the Old Testament, rather. And when God removed himself, he says, take off those things. 
I don't want you to represent me. Take those things off. So they all took them off. They were ashamed. God still showed them mercy, even though he removed himself from their midst. And even after that, God led them personally. After that, God sent an angel. He distanced himself from his people. For a while, God chose to only meet with Moses outside the camp. And the relationship between God and Israel was like that between a father and a disobedient child. As disobedient children, Israel became afraid of God. But look at verse 11. And we'll do some reading here in a moment. But look at verse 11 here. The Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. So Israel was afraid of God, but God spoke to Moses as a friend. And as, as God enabled Moses to enjoy his veiled presence, Moses began to, be, began to understand some things. He began to realize the greatness of God, and he desperately wanted to hear God or to see God's glory. Look at verse number 18, and we'll read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll open in a word of prayer this morning. Verse number 18 of Exodus 13, or Exodus 33, rather, the Bible says, And he said, this is Moses speaking, I beseech thee, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face. For there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. The glory of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to look into your word this morning. Lord, we take it as a, as a pleasure and a gift that you would even communicate with us. As, as a stiff-necked people, as we read about Israel, Lord, we can identify so much with them, Lord. I personally can identify with these people. And Lord, and I pray, Lord, that you just meet with us this morning. Help us to see your glory as it's portrayed here in, in your words throughout Exodus Throughout some parts in the other, in other parts of the Bible here, Lord, I pray that um, you just meet with us in a special way. Lord, I know that little is much when you're in it. And Lord, and we rarely have a lot, Lord, but what we have, we want to offer it to you this morning. We love you. We stand before you. We want to worship you. Lord, and we thank you for allowing us to meet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, as God enabled Moses to see... Moses began to realize how great God really was. And again, in verse 18, he says, I beseech thee, show me your glory. I beg you, Lord, I beg you, please show me your glory. And what was God's response there? Many things, but immediately he says, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. Show me your glory, Lord. I will make all my past, all my goodness pass before thee. So in this, we see, number one, God's passing glory. We see a passing glory. Now, I do not mean passing as if it will pass away, but passing as it is here in the text, that it went by 
Moses. God put Moses in the rock, and Moses caught a glimpse of the greatness of God. Moses caught a glimpse at how great God was. One might wonder why Moses made such a request. And this is interesting. I think this is the, the, the crux of the point here this morning on this, this first part here, at this passing glory. We may wonder why Moses made such a request, but I don't think his reasoning, if we read through the text here, is not too hard to comprehend. You see, as we talked about a little bit here, and as the Scriptures repeatedly tell us, the children of Israel rebelled over and over and over again. And we see that sometimes from, from man's point of view, how, how the children of Israel offended God. But look at it from God's point of view. They deeply offended God. God did all of this. You know, if you look throughout all of the Old Testament, it's, it's not, God doesn't say over and over again. He says a few times, but not over and over again, remember creation. He doesn't say remember the flood. He don't say remember this, remember that. He says remember the exodus. Over and over, this is the highlight of the Old Testament, the Exodus. And God just brought these people out of that, and they chose to worship something they made with their own hands. They deeply offended God by worshiping that golden calf. God had every reason to start over with them. But in chapter 32, if you want to go back a page or two, to chapter 32, look at verse 31. The Bible says, after that, Moses went back up on the hill. It says, Moses returned, Exodus 32, 31. Moses returned unto the Lord and said, oh, this people have sinned a great sin. You know, we won't go into it this morning, but Moses actually put their sin on his account or tried to. He says, blot out my, my name from the book of life. And God says, and no, if you, for, if, you, if you repent, I will forgive you. If they repent, I will forgive them. But you're not, I'm not putting their sin on you. Moses grew in the Lord. Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin. You see, much had changed in the relationship between God and His people since the Red Sea. God had threatened to wipe them out. God had moved His presence from the outside of the camp to, or from in the camp to outside of the camp. And because of Moses' position and their sin, now a large wedge is between the people and Moses. So there's already a gap now between, between the children of Israel and between Moses, or, or between God. And Moses is somewhere in the middle. I mean, who does he have to turn to? He, he has God. There's a great wedge, a great uh, a space between him and his people. Moses was alone. And that's what I'm trying to point out here this morning in this passing glory. Moses found himself in a unique position. I don't have a people if you remember at the end of this, we didn't read it here, but when they sinned, God said to Moses, what are your people doing? And Moses reminded me, reminded God, they're, they're your people, Lord. Moses had separated himself and he needed God. Yes, Joshua was nearby, but you know, Joshua could not provide the kind of strength and encouragement that Moses deeply desired. He needed God. I mean, I, I hope that's coming across in my mind, I don't know if I'm conveying it as good as it should be conveyed, but God is showing some signs of leaving. I want to wipe them out, Moses. I want to move over here, Moses. They're not my people, Moses. They're your people. God is showing some signs of leaving. Now, God is leading Moses, and he has no intention of doing these things. But again, you put yourself in Moses' place. You don't really see that yet. Moses needs God. We need God. In verse 15 of Exodus chapter 33, if you want to jump back over there, 
33, verse 15, the Bible says, And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, this is Moses to God, carry us not up hence. I don't want to go anywhere without you, God. I need you in my life. So Moses asked God, who now only resides on the outskirts of this moving village, if you will, he says, please don't send me anywhere that you're not with me. Moses continues, if I have found grace in your sight, please be with me, and please show me your glory. Yes, I've seen you. I mean, think about it. Has Moses, has Moses seen a little bit of the glory of God? I think he has. The pillar of fire. He's, he's seen the Red Sea uh, part. And what about the time in Egypt and all the miracles God used there? But now he is saying, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your mercy. Show me your glory. I've seen you in the pillar of fire. I've seen you in the pillar of smoke. I've seen your thunderous cloud descend on top of Mount Sinai and shake the ground beneath us. I've seen all that, but I want to see you personally. Show me you, Lord. Show me your glory. I need to be encouraged. Again, there are signs that look like you might be done with us, Lord. I need some encouragement. I'm all by myself. There are things going on right now that trouble me. I need some encouragement. I need to see you. I need to see your glory. Show me your glory, Lord. If you think about that for a moment with, with me about our modern struggles sometimes, we may find ourselves getting to a place where we don't have a people, if you will, and it seems like God's so far off that He's just silent, and we're just going through this life with no direction and no guidance. I think we can follow Moses' example here. Lord, I beseech Thee, show me Your glory. Show me Your glory. Maybe we'll only get a glimpse. Maybe we'll only get a glimmer of God's glory. But whatever it may be in this life, when Moses or anybody comes close to all the goodness of God, I think it'll change your life. I think it'll change your life. God's glory passed by Moses as he was hid in the cleft of the rock. And God delivered a nation through this man. This man who had nowhere to turn, he needed to see God. He went to God, show me your glory, and it changed him. And God made him a mighty man. He delivered a nation through him. He used him to write the first five books of the Bible and many other things. And without getting ahead of myself too much in the text here this morning in our, in our sermon, as great as God's passing glory was to Moses, God has something even more unique for us. But before we get to that, I want to look at a different perspective of God's glory in the following chapter of Exodus 34. So go to Exodus 34. So we saw God's passing glory with Moses hidden in the rock. And I hope as this, as this sermon progresses, I hope it kind of crescendos, or whatever you call that right word, into something that really speaks to you, and you see truly how great God's glory is. Look at verse 27 of Exodus 34. And the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, 
For after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water, and he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came to pass when Moses came down from the mountain, signed um, from Mount Sinai with two tables of testimony in Moses' hand when he came down from the mount that Moses wist or he knew not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Quite different than the first time he came down the mountain. Verse 30 says, And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto him, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in the Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which uh, that which he was commanded, and the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him, speak with the Lord. So we see first a passing glory, and maybe a surprising title here, but this is his provisional glory. Provisional glory. All in all, Moses spent about 80 days on that mountain, separated in 40-day 40 40 increments. It's been 80 days with the Lord. God showed him his glory there. We just read about that. God would con con consistently meet with him in the tabernacle now outside of the people. So God had a regular meeting with the Lord. And every time, as we just read, every time Moses would meet with God, it was like his face absorbed the glory of God. It changed his countenance. And he began to shine with that glory. At first, the people were afraid. I don't know if that ever completely went away. But they also knew that what was on the face of Moses, his glowing countenance, they knew that it, was, it signified his presence with Almighty God. He didn't go up there to meet a golden calf. That was for sure. He met God, and it showed in his face. When God granted Moses his wish of showing him a little bit of who he was when he put him in the rock and he saw a glimpse of God's glory, that same glory now reflected in the face of Moses. And the people could easily see that Moses had been with God. There's some easy applications here. You see, after meeting with God, Moses reflected the glory of God in his face. And after meeting with God today, there should be some signs of us meeting with God. Maybe our face is not going to shine. It would be kind of strange today, I think. But there should be some signs in your life that shows that you've had some private meetings with Almighty God. Like Moses, our walk with God is a personal walk. It's an intimate walk. And how we look before others is not the whole story, but our look before others should reflect the glory of God in our life, in our walk, in our talk, in our mannerisms, all of that should reflect the glory of God. Matter of fact, I think it's a, it's a great sign when you see people who are, are not easily shaken by things in this world, they walk with God. And while we certainly fall short of God's glory, as did even Moses, the closest to us should see 
Those closest to us, our wives, our spouses, our husbands, those closest to us should, should see God's glory in our lives, in our faces, in our speech, in our actions, in all that we are. We are to reflect God. You know, the moon has no light by itself. It only reflects the sun. May we reflect the sun. May we shine like Moses shined before his people. In context, in the text here, we get the idea that Moses went through some veiling and some unveiling, back and forth, right? He unveiled himself before God, because nobody can really stand before God veiled. Uh, he unveiled himself before God, and when he spoke to Israel, he also unveiled himself. But the times in between, if I can understand this text right, he would veil himself, and you would wonder, well, why would he veil himself? If he unveils himself before the people, and he unveils himself when he's talking to God, why put a veil on when he's in between those meetings. Why? Because it was a provisional glory. It was designed, this glory, it was designed for a certain time. Look at verse 34. It tells us that uh, when it was off, he was before the Lord, and verse 35 says that he, that Israel saw his face. So we see very clearly that they saw the face of Moses. So when he spoke with God, the veil was removed. And when he spoke to the people, it was removed. But in between, he wore a veil. You might ask again, what would be the purpose of a veil if the people were permitted to see him, see that glory when he spoke to them? Why the veil? Take your Bible. Don't lose your place there. I want you to jump forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul adds some light onto this subject and helps us see, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how we can understand this passage. Again, why the veil? Why did Moses speak to the people right after speaking with God and then put on a veil? Let's look here. Verse number 7 of chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. But if the ministration of death, written and engraved in stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, but or by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. So why the veil? Why was Moses putting this veil on and off? Because the glory in his face was fading. It was going away. It was provisional. The Apostle Paul very clearly connects this glory not the passing glory in, of God when Moses hit him or God hit him in the rock, but with the glory found in the law. The law was temporary. It's provisional. Paul even called the tables of stone. Look at that up there in verse number 7. Ministrations of death. Ministrations of condemnation. Now, what did he mean by this? Ultimately, the Ten Commandments, actually all 613 commandments in the Old Testament, they could never bring Life. Never. Just the opposite. They bring death. 
The law shows us that we are dead, that we are spiritually dead. And however one looks at the law of God, when we study the Ten Commandments and all those other laws, whatever we do, how we look at it theologically, philosophically, spiritually, practically, it really doesn't matter. The law can never bring life. Never. That was not the purpose of the law. Its purpose was to show us that we are dead. I mean, if we, even my experience, even with not even studying the Ten Commandments and studying the Old Testament, we realize this. At least in some micro form, I have a standard in my life. Say, when I was in the Army, I wanted to run two miles at, you know, 12 minutes flat. That was my standard, and I did it at 18 minutes. <laughs> I didn't meet my own standard. So whatever standard we have, we fail to meet that standard, and God's standards are much higher than this. Even, even the standards of ethics and morals and all these things like that, we fail. The law shows us that we fail. The law says thou shalt not lie. We lie. We violate the law. James says if we violate one part, we violate it all. It shows us that we are violators of the law, that we are spiritually dead. The law's purpose was to show us that we are dead and point us to who is alive. Galatians 3, 4 says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. In the grand picture of things, the law is, was a provisional glory that pointed to, pointed to a permanent glory, a temporary glory pointing to God's permanent glory that will never fade away. Look then again at verse number 11. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. That which remaineth is a permanent glory. A permanent glory. Verse 12, continuing on, seeing that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded, for unto this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Spirit, now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So we have a permanent glory in Jesus Christ. The glory of God that passed before Moses is, of course, permanent. But the manifestation of that passing glory, that permanent glory, is in Jesus Christ. Both Paul and James and some other uh, New Testament writers wrote that Jesus is the Lord of glory. And Hebrews chapter 1 states that He is the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. And speaking of the foundations of heaven and earth, God the Father told God the Son in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 1, They shall perish, but thou remainest. In other words, the law was temporary glory, designed from the beginning to be temporary, but the glory of God in Jesus Christ will always remain. Again, verse 11, For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. You see, the law is for our benefit. It brings death, but we need to see that. We need to see that we are dead without Christ, because if we don't see that we're dead, we can never live. We need to recognize our wretched state so we can see His righteous state. The law is for our benefit. The holy standards of God 
are there to point us to the Holy Savior of God. That's what they're there for. That's the purpose. And when we fail to meet God's righteous standards, and all of us fall short of His glory, we are not to conclude that it's pointless. I mean, I've been there. I've, I've lived a number of years not living right for the Lord. We're not going to get to a point where I sin today, I sin tomorrow. Well, you know what? There it goes. There goes life. I'm just a sinner. That's not what the laws want us to, wants us to do. That's not what God wants us to do. It points to a Savior. Because as long as we're in this life, we're going to make mistakes. But we're not to succumb to sin. We're not to be content with the wages of sin. That's not the point of the law. We're supposed to recognize that we're dead and then look to Him who lives. We are to look to Jesus. In fact, notice back in Exodus 33. Don't lose your place there in, 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 in 2 Corinthians 3, but go back to Exodus 33. Y'all remember the God, God, uh, God put Moses in the rock there in Exodus 33? Look at, look at verse 21. Where was Moses standing? The Bible says, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. Shalt shall stand upon a rock. And where did God put Moses when he passed by from that rock? In the cleft of that rock inside the rock. So the only place for Moses to find refuge when the glory of God was there, the only place where Moses could see the glory of God and not die was to be hid in a rock near the Father. And friends, I must say that it's ever so true today. We must be hid in the rock that is near the Father our only place of refuge is in and upon the rock, which is Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He is the rock that we love. Psalm 61, 2, our, our church verse, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. We must be in Jesus Christ. The only place you and I will ever see the never-fading, permanent glory of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. He alone is the brightness of His glory. So our hope, our hope, as Paul says back in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 3, our hope is not in a glory that fades away. Our hope is in a permanent glory. The glory that fades was written upon tables of stone. Those tables of stones are long been lost. We don't know where they're at. Maybe they're in the Ark of the Covenant, but we don't know where that's at either. But God's permanent glory is written upon the hearts of those who believe. Go back to 2 Corinthians 3 real quick. Look at verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians 3, the Bible says, Do we begin to commend ourselves, or need we, as some other epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? Verse 2, Ye are our letter, our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God in the text. Uh, not in tables of stone, but in, f in fleshy tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, not of the Ten Commandments, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. God's permanent glory is written 
on the hearts of those who believe. But unfortunately, much of the world's population, just like the Jews here in this passage in 2 Corinthians 3, we've already read about, in one way or another, they're stuck on earning God's favor. They're stuck on the law. One way or the other, we're trying, to, we're trying to earn our way to heaven. All the religions in the world, even some parts of Christianity, think that we can earn God's love and earn God's merit. It's not in the Scriptures. By grace are we saved. And writing about the Jews here in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, right there where you're at, Paul said that even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Much like lost folks today, the veil is upon their heart. They choose to focus on earning grace instead of receiving grace. To focus on the law instead of life. But what does the law bring? Death. The Spirit brings life. And even though the Jews could not see the forest for the trees, and even though the world today cannot see the glory of God, Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in verse 16 of our text, the Bible says, Nevertheless, look at this, I want you to see this right there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 16. Let's do 15 and 16 together. Even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, their heart, shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. You know, all we have to do is turn. Just turn. Just look to Jesus. As stubborn as the people of Israel were, and as wicked as people are today, you and I, all we must do is turn to the Lord. Just look to Jesus. 2 Peter 3.9 states that God is long-suffering to usward, and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, the very first sermon from Jesus Christ was repent and believe. Turn and believe. Turn from sin, turn from self, and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Again, I like that verse. You know I like this verse. It's simple. Do this, this happens. You see, our new life in Christ, I, wanna, I can't be clear enough. Our new life in Christ, and this is one of the biggest things I think Christians have a difficulty with, Christian cultures have a, uh, a difficulty with. Our new life in Christ is not automatic. You're not born into the family of God. You're born as a child of the devil, the Bible says. We need to do something about it. Our new life in Christ is not automatic. We do not automatically find refuge in Christ. We must individually, by faith, receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. We do not and cannot receive salvation by proxy. We cannot receive eternal life because our parents believe, because you were baptized as a baby or baptized at all. That does not bring salvation. Even if we're the best person on this planet, it doesn't work that way. We cannot earn our way into God's favor. It is only by God's grace through faith in Him and His work on the cross of Calvary. That's why He was crucified. If He was if we could get to heaven any other way, then the crucifixion was pointless. That's why he was crucified, to pay our way. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is free. You know, there's not a whole lot 
of free things in this world, I can arguably say there's probably nothing free. Salvation is. Salvation is. Eternal life is a free gift. And if you have that free gift, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And while it doesn't seem possible to receive that eternal life and to receive Christ as our Savior, it doesn't seem possible that it can get better than that. Listen to this. It can. In a unique kind of way. Not better than Christ, but a more fuller picture of this. You see, God sent His only begotten Son to a lost and dying world, to you and me. He came to seek and save the lost. But there is something we can have that Moses does not have. Well, he has now, but he didn't then. There's something that we can have that Moses that was hid from Moses. What is this? It's the permanent glory of God. Well, you can say, wait a minute, Pastor, we already talked about this. You've been talking about this for too long already. Well, remember Moses was hid in that rock? He was hid within the rock. Remember how his face shone after spending time with God? Remember the fear of people, uh, fear of the people from Moses because his face shone? They were fearful of the glory of God as he descended on Mount Sinai. Remember how God's law in Christ is not written upon stones, but upon our hearts, upon the hearts of those who believe and receive him? Well, back in 2 Corinthians 3, look at verse 3. It states that Christ is not written on our hearts, but by God's finger, but by the Spirit of the living God. And this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, resides within every true believer. Jesus said, ye know Him. Ye know Him, speaking of the Holy Spirit. Ye know Him, for He is in you. He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And 1 Peter 5, chapter 10, states that God has called unto us, or called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. And this is probably one of my favorite verses when it talks about the glory of God. 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 1, says that we are a partaker of God's glory. A partaker of God's glory. Partakers. So the glory that passed by Moses when, when he was hid in the rock, and the glory that filled those pillars of fire and the pillars of smoke for a season. And the permanent glory of Jesus Christ. It's not in some distant faraway land. It's not still leading the children of Israel through a pillar of fire. It's not still shaking the foundations of earth as God descended on Mount Sinai. The glory of God, the permanent glory of God is within you as a believer. In the person of Jesus Christ. And that same person is the same as he who created heaven and earth, he's within you. And kind of a, a sidebar application, if God can provide for and lead the stubborn children of Israel in the desert, he can certainly lead and guide us and provide all that we ever need. Because of God's grace, because of God's love, because of God's love for a stiff-necked people, the Bible says, because of his love for us, because of the cross, because of Christ, we are partakers of His glory. That, that's mind-boggling. I don't know if I can convey the significance of that. I don't think if any preacher can uh, convey the, the great significance of being a partaker of God's glory. And even after all of this, God continues to bless 
I mean, over and over and over, we start reading about what we receive when we receive Jesus Christ, and there's blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. There's a book, I can't remember the name of it, but this guy wrote about the blessings upon receiving salvation, and he got the 300 and closed the book. He says, it's endless. 300. After all of this, God continues to bless beyond measure His redeemed children. Notice verse 18 of chapter 3, and we'll close with this passage. Verse 18 says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So we, we have read about a passing glory, a provisional glory, a permanent glory, and now we read about a perfecting glory. What a great God we serve. He has not left us alone. The Spirit of God doesn't just lie dormant within us. It's not just there. He's active. He is an active God, working in us only what God can do. Just like Moses reflected the provisional glory, we are to reflect God's permanent glory. And even though He is always with us, it is clear in this verse that when we look to the Lord, when we spend time in the glory of God's presence, like a mirror, that glory is going to reflect in our lives with the ultimate goal of making us more like Him. You know, it's really pretty simple. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more we will be like Jesus. That is simple. Spend time with Jesus. The more time we spend in the presence of God's glory, the more that glory is going to reflect in our lives. It's going to come out. It has to. I mean, 27 years ago, I was married. A little bit before that, I was nothing like my wife. Probably was attracted to her because she was nothing like me. Um, We had many differences. She's from Germany. I'm from America. We grew up completely different. But, you know, right now we think the same. I mean, we can even have conversations, and she's got the same conversation. We've been around each other. We are like each other. We became one, if you will. The more we are around each other, the more we think a lot. Yeah, it's pretty pretty clear, right? And so the more you're around God, He's going to rub off on you, if I can put it that way. We're not going to rub off on Him. So we have traded some bad habits, Kiki and I, but we've traded hopefully a whole lot more good habits. You're never going to rub off your bad habits on God, but He will always rub His goodness onto you, all of His goodness. If I can put it in maybe a youth kind of way, hang out with God more. Spend time with Jesus Christ. Spend time in the glory of His presence. And I'll close with that passage and this question. Are you a partaker of God's permanent glory, or is the veil still on your heart? Turn your heart to Jesus, and you will see His glory. That's a promise from the Word of God. Let's pray.